Thanks for tuning in to the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with CEO Melissa Mash and COO Deepa Gandhi, founders of the accessories brand Dagny Dover. I know Dagny Dover as the unofficial carry-on brand for cool girls traveling, but of course, traveling has seen its high highs and low lows since the brand launched in 2013. I wanted to ask Melissa and Deepa how they've navigated the recent roller coaster ride and what they're doing now to safeguard for the future. Welcome, ladies. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Jill. Thanks so much for having us. Of course. Hi, Deepa. How are you? Nice. Um, I'm doing well. Thanks for having us, Jill. Yeah. Well, you guys, I mean, you're more than carry-on bags. I just see it at the airport and I love it. But yes, tell me about, um, first of all, your your third founder is not here, Jesse Dover. Um, but yeah, the idea that you guys all had when you came together and said, we need to put this brand um, on the market. Yeah. Do you want to take that, Deepa? Yeah, happy to. Um it's a, it's a little bit of Mel's origin, origination story, and then Jesse and I came in along the way. But um, really, you know, I think I'll, I'll let Mel tell her story, so I'll, we'll flip the narrative a little. I'll tell you how the three of us came together, but I think the story coming from Mel is strong since it was a lot of it was based on personal experience. Um, so M- Melissa and I have been friends since, um, oh, forever now, 20, 2007, 2008, I recently had um, a memory pop up with saying like, pictures from 14 years ago. So it's been a minute and um, we've been friends for a long time. And then a couple of years later, I was applying to go to business school at Wharton and one of my friends, Melissa, was there um, and I was staying with her. And when I was staying with her the night before my interview, all she wanted to do was talk to me about her handbag problems and people's handbag problems and what works and what doesn't work because she'd worked at coach before and knew that there was an opportunity to innovate in the industry. I was sitting there saying, Hey, can you help me prep for my interview tomorrow so I can get into school first? (laughs) And a year later, once I got there, um, she was still working on this great idea. And um, I'm going to let her take it from here since it's her, it was her own journey that got us to the founding of Dagny Dover. Melissa, yeah, go ahead. Sure. So I'd say growing up, I was always really into fashion, but I had a lot of bag problems and I couldn't ever find something that really worked for me. I wanted something that um, could flex with the different parts of my day, something that would make sure that the water bottle that ruined a bag um, while I was, you know, the one item that I splurged on when I was studying abroad in, in Italy in college um, that ruined the bag, you know, wouldn't, would be able to actually hold a water bottle to stand upright and my keys could be in there and my laptop could be in there. Um, and so, you know, when I was working for Coach, I first worked for them in New York, um, managing brick and, brick and mortar wholesale accounts as well as helping launch its wholesale e-commerce channel. But then I moved into a store management role in London and I was brought in to um, sort of lead the turnaround at its first European location. And working at the airport, working at Heathrow Terminal 5, if anyone's ever been there, it's super posh um, terminal. It's British Airways exclusive terminal. There's every single long-standing European brand represented in the terminal. So there's Prada, there's Gucci, there's Dior, of course, there's Coors, there's Tumi. And then people would come into the coach store and they'd want something different. You know, they wanted something that could help them with their business travel. They wanted to be able to store and protect their laptops. They wanted to be able to find their passport and carry, you know, a wallet with different currencies in it and so on. And so you sort of just heard this broken record of problems that people have with their bags. And I was like, yes, I understand you because I've had all these problems myself. At, At the time I was carrying a six pound bag that coach had gifted me 
it was supposed to be made for like the ultimate, you know, businesswoman, but the laptop wouldn't even fit in it. It was poking out of the sides and so on. So, you know, I felt these problems a- acutely. And at the time when I was working in London, it was 2009, you know, digitally native brands were starting to come up with Bobble Bar and Bonobos had just recently launched. And I was very much a believer that, you know, digitally native brands were, were the future in terms of um, minimizing the capital expenditures, right? Needed to, ne- not needed, but used by many of the traditional brands to grow their brands. Um, and also just extensive wholesale partners, where if you were able to sell directly to your customers, own that relationship, then you could provide even a, a greater value to, to the customer in addition to the product. So that's how Dagny Dover came to be, I'd say, in terms of the actual idea. Um, I then went back to business school and um, went in actually with a different business idea, then came back to the bags being like, this is the one with the that's right for me to execute and that has, you know, huge market potential and started um, focus groups and surveys at that time. And Deepa interviewing, interviewing for business school was in one of my first focus groups. And of course, having us both come from the industry, we knew that we had complementary skill sets. I was also looking for another designer at the time who could round out our founding team. It was really important to us that we have all three skills represented, you know, on the founding team, one, so that we could move quickly and move longer without maybe having to, you know, raise money immediately, but really just test out and make sure we did have product market fit. And number two, because we felt it was so important with um, with the designer to be on the founding team and to not only have that skin in the game, but also for our customers to be able to identify and say like, hey, this is coming from an actual person with a face who lives a very similar lifestyle to me. Something that Deepa Jesse and I feel very strongly about in how we lead our company and how we built our company is that we didn't see us reflected in management, right? We, first of all, it was a very, and continues to be a very male dominated um, industry, despite, you know, who they're selling to and what, who the products are made for and who actually even works at these companies, right? And so we wanted to create a place that really felt like it was made for us and it was, um, and it was run with a, a different type of energy than maybe what we've seen in our, in our previous experiences working in retail. Yeah, I love it. Well, tell me about this, I guess, balance of fashion and function, because I, you mentioned um, have the importance of having a designer as a founding member. Um, I hear this a lot from pe- brands that either are, they consider themselves designer-led or, de- yes, brands. And I, I've heard some smack about direct-to-consumer brands and the almost, almost um, I guess, alluding to like a generic quality or it's not, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of design to it. Also you, I mean, there's so much to it because a work bag, there are only maybe three totes that hold a computer that people know of and go to time and time again. So tell me about that balance there and how, what the key to striking it. I see all these points that they're bringing up. I think we all did where we've either seen companies that were like very designer led where it's not necessarily built to be a business, right? Not built for scale or you see them very, very commercial, right? And that's not appealing either. And to your point about what other people are saying, it becomes very marketing driven, right? And hype driven versus actual quality and actual is the product doing anything for my life besides me being excited for the five minutes that I'm first trying it. And so that's something that was really important to us is we needed to have this mix. I mean, as, as Deepa mentioned, we have very different backgrounds. Deepa comes from Wall Street. Deepa comes from finance. She's very analytical. I come from sales, retail. I come from, you know, a general a general retail um, background. And so us being combined on the, on the business side and then Jesse on the design side, it was very intentional that we wanted we wanted to make sure that we didn't kill the magic, right, with, with the money. And that we certainly didn't um, also let, you know, the magic overrun uh, the the viability of our, of our brand that we were creating. So it's always been a very honestly, a really beautiful partnership and a really beautiful way that we work together and that we collaborate together. 
Yeah, I actually want to jump in on something additional is like as the Wall Street finance background person, there's a financial benefit to it. Um, We have from day one turned a profit on almost every acquisition, if not every acquisition we have ever made, which is unique if you look at our peer group, right? And a lot of the other brands that launched almost 10 years ago. And we fundamentally believe it had to do with not just our collective skill sets and the balance that we had, but we're a product first company. And when you make great product, word of mouth happens. People want to come back to you. They want to stay loyal rather than just paying for an acquisition at any cost. And that continues to today. And it's been phenomenal to watch Jesse and her team continue to create and innovate year after year after year. Like it, to your point, we started with this perfect work tote, but the business has grown like tenfold in terms of assortment beyond that. And it's turned into a lifestyle as a result. So what made a customer love us on day one because of that perfect tote that we created still has them loving us when we launch, you know, the perfect fanny pack or the perfect baby diaper backpack, right? Things like that. And it's, and it's more, it's because we have that balance that we believe we're able to continue the magic that got us to where we are today and will continue, continue to allow us to build and grow as we move forward. And just to that point, I think that another thing that really differentiates us between a lot of like what you're saying, you know, like the soul not not being super, super apparent in some of these brands that have launched digitally is that we came from retail, you know, and that's very different from like two X MBAs, two X consultant MBAs, you know, like solving a problem. Like there's so much more to this. And it also plays into how we finance the business and the choices that we made and how we grew the business and what types of partners we brought on and so on. So I think that you don't really see a combination that, that we have on our team in which we come from retail. Um, there's a designer on our team. Um, there's a nice mix between, you know, the magic and, and the, let's call it financial or operational. And then also the fact that we were launched digitally, but often kind of run more like in many ways, like a traditional retail brand, but with the efficiencies of the tech and of the modern times, I'd say. Yeah. Adipa, you mentioned um, profit with every acquisition. You're talking customer acquisition. Yeah. Tell yes. me about that, the challenge that that's become um, that I'm hearing from every brand right now. I, I heard that's the greatest challenge facing direct-to-consumer brands now um, in terms of, yes, navigating new privacy laws, all of that jazz. But yeah, talk to me about that. The cookie-less world. It is quite the conversation. And it frankly is something we've been talking about for a while. Like well before it became a hot button topic early last year, we have always had this perspective that it's about our blended marketing, integrated marketing strategy. It's not about, well, these are your pay channels. If you do X, Y, or Z with, you know, social media advertising and, you know, CPC search and SEO and then, you know, podcast advertising, et cetera, that you will acquire this many customers because we've never been in the sessions game. We've always been in like, let's actually acquire true, loyal Dagny Dover customers. And so from day one, word of mouth, organic owned type of traffic and acquisitions has been our priority. And we view paid advertising as something that supports it. It doesn't lead the process. And what that means is we spend a lot of time on great product and product innovation and and that roadmap. And as a result, We have seen that that strong, organic, word-of-mouth driven customer and acquisition, which is very profitable, has continued to to this day, like looking at the past 12 months, 60% of our traffic 
was owned, organic, direct type of traffic. And what that means is we're able to better shoulder some of these um, increases in acquisition costs that you're seeing from the paid channels because whether it's just the over um, saturation of social media advertising platforms or the impact that privacy laws in the cookie-less world has on your ability to really hyper-target an individual, what we have found is we're able to kind of walk away without having as much of an impact on our CACs because we also, first, we know how to do everything else. We know how to find that customer without only relying on Instagram as a platform, for example. Second, because we've always viewed it as this big blended mix it's more about, well, what do we lean into more? And you will see over from us for the next 12 to 24 months, we're going to be even more radical with how we think about marketing and acquiring customers. Um, I think you recently actually wrote an article about this was, you know, are people using, you know, wholesalers as a new marketing vehicle? We were doing that from basically day one. Um, we, from the beginning said, let's find a couple really high quality retail partners. And we view them as retail partners, not as wholesale clients for us that have maybe the demographic that we know we already have and love or a new demographic. And let's go to where that customer is and already shopping and acquire customers that way. So when we think about the cost of wholesale, we always viewed it as actually a version of customer acquisition, right? And what's great is we built that business model into our business model years ago. So right now it's actually just continuing work that we have done in the past. You know, Nordstrom is a great example of this, right? It's, you know, expanding from a handful of stores to all of their stores, you know, really has had a ripple effect on our business. There's a halo effect. When we went live with Equinox, it really helped expedite the growth of our 365 collection, which was, you know, that more athleisure, athletic type of customer. They're finding, you know, maybe that one product you had in an Equinox location, but then coming back to us and buying more. So it really is about the entire web and marketing mix and not just about paid. Yes. It's interesting. I think that I first discovered that you were at Nordstrom when I was at the new New York store and like running around looking for last minute Christmas gifts. And I was like, I didn't even know they were at Nordstrom. I, uh, anyway, I saw it there. Um, but yes, where are you now? What's the breakdown in terms of your sales and how, what percentage are, are through wholesale partners? Yeah, it's a really small percentage still. It's really meant to complement what we do online digitally directly with our customers. And of course, our flagship store in New York also does as well. But really, our relationships with Nordstrom or Equinox or ShopBop and so on is really just to, to get yet another touch point with a customer that may not be familiar with us or who may not, who may want to obviously touch and feel our products more locally to where they live. But it's awesome that we're um, not only in all of Nordstrom's and Equinox's U.S. stores, but also Canadian stores as well. Great. How many stores do you guys have now? Just the one in New York. That oh, got in, it. In the middle of COVID, which is super exciting. <laughs> I probably, oh my gosh, talk to me about this. <laughs> um, yes. First of all, what, was that the plan? Did you plan to um, open it even earlier than you did? Um, and yeah, any, any regrets there? So the store was quite the experience. Um, we were probably 70 to 80% built out when COVID hit. Um, so we were gunning for, you know, a nice spring opening, really excited. For about a year and a half prior, we had a pop-up location also down in Soho, a little, a couple blocks away from where our permanent location now is. And we knew it really worked. We knew it was a really great way for customers to interact with the brand. We had a test drive station. 
which you can take products and actually fill up a bag, see what works, what doesn't work for you. People are really, really interacting with that space at our pop-up. So we kind of turned the entire store experience into that. And we were really excited, um, but we took a pause. And then once we were able to pick back up, we went full force ahead with opening the store. And it's been a great experience. Obviously, traffic is down in and anywhere. And we're really hopeful that we're getting out of that right now. But what was really exciting about the store and building out our first flagship permanent location was we were really able to embody and manifest our brand and um, actually also put forward some things that were really important to us. So beyond, you know, just showcasing our great product, having, you know, versions of our test drive station, um, a good amount of the materials we used in the store from our flooring to um, a good portion of all of the shelving is made out of recycled materials. Like the flooring is made out of recycled rubber. The, um, a lot of the shelving, especially in the, ca- the sca- scaffolding setup that we have in the store for our shelves is made out of, um, it's like a terrazzo. It looks like terrazzo, but it actually is made out of recycled um, bottles and like um, yogurt caps and things like that. Like you see flecks of like the metallic from a yogurt cap and stuff. And so it's really cool because we've been very thoughtful about how we built out that store um, to make sure that we, you know, took it from a design angle, but also um, an eco-friendly angle. Yes. Oh, well, that's such a good representation of the brand. Um, Tell me about sustainability as as a focus. Was that... um from day one, I mean, I'm sure it wasn't easy to pull off from day one, but um, yeah, how has that evolved, that focus? Yeah, so I'd say that like sustainability from other category standpoint, like workwear, for example, has been pretty developed for a few years prior to, I'd say, the, the um, supply chain for bags has. Bags are a little bit more complicated, right? They need to be able to wear and weather the elements in, in a different way than, than clothing is expected to. So, um, you know, I'd say over the past three years in particular, we've been really proud of the materials that we use and what we've been able to do on the product side, right? We offer organic cotton as one of our materials. We offer um, vegan leather. We also offer um, a uh, recycled um, poly that we that we um, use in a lot of our materials and so on. So I'd say that we're really proud of where we are today and definitely where we're going. Everything that we are, you know, committed to doing in the future is better than it has been, not only for us, but of course, also the industry standard, which is fantastic. And we hope that we create a new standard of, of what sustainable bags look like um, for other brands to follow suit as well. But I will say that, you know, it has been a labor um, to get there, you know, and it has been a struggle. And I'm, we're so glad that consumers are now demanding it because the supply chain is now finally responding and they are, um, you know, implementing new technologies and just getting more creative uh, in a way that, you know, as I mentioned, for other verticals like workwear and um, clothing that have been available for, a, you know, a couple years prior to, to, to where we are with, with the bag industry. For sure. Yeah, and um, what's also great is um, where we could be eco-conscious from the beginning We were. So from the beginning, we have tried to limit the amount of um, waste that we have from our sampling process. A lot of your big handbag brands, they sample like 100 options and then they only end up producing 10. Right. And there's a lot of waste. There's just a lot of waste in that process. And so from day one, that was a place that we could commit to saying, if there's leftover material from a previous season, let's use that to create samples for the next season. If we can't actually use it, let's donate it to maybe like a fashion school somewhere. Right. Let's find a way to make sure that we're trying to get as little into 
um, kind of like the waste category from our sampling and development process. We've also always been really thoughtful of how many items we do sample and what actually goes into production because there's just, there's a lot that goes into that. And that was an area we could address earlier on, right? And that's important. But now it's, yeah, as the supply chain catches up, we're able to do even more and we definitely are making strides in the impact that we can have. And our hope is that we push our industry forward. Um, and the last piece is we actually launched Almost Vintage, which is our resale site last year, which was super exciting. And part of that was um, to help support a more, you know, eco-friendly mentality, right? People, you know, are really trying to create a, a world where secondhand is a a wonderful option and a wonderful way to create some level of circularity with products. We've seen a great response from our customer base and new customers. Um, And what was awesome is we saw there were actually customers in like Facebook groups and other places already doing this selling. So we said, let's, let's bring that in. Let's, let's create a space for them. Yes. Did that require a third, third party partner? I know that's really hard to pull off. Yeah. Um, Yes. We work with archive resale. Um, and they're a fantastic partner. I know they're bringing on a lot of new clients. We were one of their first customers and we want, we wanted to move quickly. We saw the opportunity and we knew it was something that we believed in, not just for our customers, but for kind of like the world that we live in. Um, and it's been really great to see the response to it. Yeah, it's great that already just in the first six months since it's launched, over a thousand bags have been purchased or repurchased, we'll say, through it. So imagine, you know, what that what kind of impact that can have over the next few years is incredible. Um, additionally, another thing I wanted to mention was that, you know, it's often industry practice, as I think several brands have been called out for doing this, but like the big brands will destroy the bags, right? That they didn't get to sell or that, you know, that, you know, so waste is a huge issue in particular, I'd say in the bag category or is known to be a big issue in the bag category. And that's something that we have always felt very strongly is why would we do that? You know, we have a number of organizations that we continue to partner with, whether it's Baby to Baby, Just for Success, mother, uh, Single Mothers Outreach, and so on, where we're able to give these bags a second life and, and also hopefully help people be organized and feel prepared and confident for whatever the day throws at them. Yeah, I know a lot of that has to do with like seasonality and this is like, it's no longer new, like we're not going to sell this. What, what's what been your approach to, um, yes, whether you're selling classic styles or when when the newness comes in? Yeah, I mean, well, that's kind of reflected in, in our assortment that you see on our website. Most of our styles are evergreen. You know, 80% of what we sell, 80% of what you see on the website is, is our styles that last years and years. And that was part of our business model is we didn't want to have to keep reinventing every single season. It seemed like such a waste. You know, there are certain things that um, that are very successful in market and, and why don't we build upon them and offer them year round and become a staple for that instead of always, you know, having to have that wasteful process, wasteful in intellect, wasteful in material. And so really, you know, the newness that you see every year is, of course, additional new collections that we're building out, but also the editorial and the limited edition. And that, of course, keeps people coming back to our site, keeps them really excited and engaged, but also makes sure that we're spending our time, we're spending our money and our materials in a, in a very conscious way, not, not a wasteful way as well. Yes. Well, you mentioned supply chain. Um, where are you guys producing your bags? And yeah, have you... Has your experience in the last couple of years been pretty typical in terms of those obstacles as well? Oh, I could write a book on this. <laughs> um, so we produce um, uh, all of our inventory um, from a factory perspective in China and the Philippines. And um, our raw material vendors are global. And so we are getting hit with all of the supply chain challenges, delays, et cetera, co- increased costs that everybody's experiencing. 
What really is great though, we have amazing factory partners who we've, we're working together. We have, reality is, had to place our orders months ahead of when we normally would have had to, to ensure that we you know, have product when we need it, when we stay in stock. Things are only getting longer. They're not getting shorter. Um, and so we just, it's proactive planning and really partnering with all of, all of our factory and vendors to say like, how do we make sure we do this together? How do we, you know, accept how the world has shifted and changed from a supply chain perspective and now work that into our plans. But it's been, it's been tough and it just, it's to be frank, it's not getting better. Um, it's just now my team, you know, basically is like, okay, let's just, let's just assume this is how it's going to be, or maybe it's going to be even worse. And, you know, we can plan for that. We can be proactive. Um, but yeah, things are taking anywhere from two to no, three, to be frank, to six months to arrive from a port when it used to take one to two months max. Um, so it's a whole different ball game. It's a whole different financing strategy. It's um, complicated, but we have a really good team working on it. Yes. Has the the inflation, is that been reflected on your prices yet? So we did, um, we, we did do a price increase last year. Um, and we are evaluating what we need to do. I think it's just, it's everything has become more expensive. Inflation is real. And we believe our customer understands that. And for us to maintain the quality of the product, right. And the partnerships that we have with our factories, the good work that we do, um, and to maintain kind of the eco-friendly practices that we're pushing forward, right? There's a cost to being sustainable. Um, we we ha- we put one in place, and it doesn't mean that we won't do it again in the future. But we always try to make sure that we're super open and honest and transparent with our customers when we're doing this, so they understand why, right? We want to continue to provide to them what they believe we as Dagny can, and there is a cost to it. And so the last time the customer was really understanding, our hope is if we have to do it in the future, they will be too. But we'll always be honest and transparent. It's not just about more margin. It's truly about maintaining what we've built the company on for the future. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Well, um, I'm sure Deepa, your your background comes in in handy while while, um, approaching fundraising. And and, I mean, as three female founders, I'm sure you guys have had your unique challenges in that regard as well. Um, Yeah. What's been your approach so far? Uh, Melissa, you want to tackle that? Sure. I mean, like, you know, I think that it's, you you don't see three, you know, women coming together to found a company and being successful and, you know, being happy nine years later as well. So I think that that's a real testament to, again, not only our complementary skill sets and personalities, but just our tenacity and our, and our um, willingness to, to, to be committed to each other, right? Like, any marriage. I mean, we're extremely committed to one another, not even as pertaining to the business, but in general as, as like life partners, right? It's another form of, of a very, um, of a lifelong relationship and, um, partnership. So I think that, you know, something that sets us apart from a lot of other brands is we, we have a different way of communicating. We're extremely open with one another. We're extremely um, trusting of one another and, um, you know, hearing feedback from one another as well. Um, and I think that there's, you know, something to be said about also, we don't allow egos in our company and certainly not within our partnership either. And it, it wouldn't have worked if anyone had, you know, and I think that that's a really big transition for people typically, you know, coming out of their 20s, you know, they're trying to establish themselves in the workplace, they're trying to stand out as a leader, but in a partnership, and, you know, we all started this partnership when we were in our late 20s, um, I think Jesse in her mid-20s, but it's a different muscle to exercise and, and to hone in on and to make sure that 
we're, we're as strong, you know, as strong as we can be individually as well as together. So we do a lot of, you know, we have a business coach, um, a leadership coach we work with very closely. And, you know, we're, we're self-aware enough to know, you know, our areas in which we're, we're really strong, our areas in which we can use a little bit more work on and how to do that together to make sure that we're growing and building this company the right way and not being reactive. So that's really important to us. It's just being really thoughtful. And hopefully that's reflected in our products. But we're really thoughtful in every single piece of our business from how we operate internally to how we communicate externally, internally, you know, within our teams and so on. For sure. Yes. What's been your, um, I guess, what are what do investors want to know? Do they want to know about your growth to date? Do they want to know, are you opening more stores, staying to DTC? What's been the hot button? And <laughs> yeah, where, where, what are you focusing on there? So from an investor perspective, I think, um, I think Mel mentioned this earlier, but we took a very different funding path, right? So we did not raise from large VC funds. We have raised what um, we coined, coined as patient capital. So early on, that was angels, high net worth individuals, friends and family. As we grew, um, we, it was also high net worth individuals, but also family office, strategic type of money. And what's great about this money is they're patient and they're in it with us for the long run. There isn't a fund life that they're up against where at a certain point they're like, we need to figure out what's our exit or what's next or what's moving on. And, you know, if you're, you know, we're only looking for unicorns. So let's just grow you, grow you, grow you and fund you, fund you, fund you until maybe you have the option to IPO as a unicorn. Rather, we have investors that, Really what they care about is how are you building the strongest brand with an evangelical loyal customer and a strong future product pipeline? So the conversations we are having are not about how many customers did you acquire last month? Obviously, they still care about that. But really, the conversation is around how are we continuing as a brand and a business to innovate when it comes to product? How are what is what does customer loyalty look like? We talk a lot about CLV to CAC because um, that's the best kind of loyalty metric you can find in terms of KPIs. And it's not just about the ratio, but it's about what's impacting that. What's driving that CLV up? Is it first purchases? Is it repeat customer rate? Is it frequency of purchase? How can we impact those things? And the thesis is if we have if we continue to have amazing product and continue to, you know, create and expand to new customers or continue to evolve to address new parts of our customer's life, as for an example, um, about two years, two and a half years ago, right around the time I had my my son, even though this was not purposefully done, we launched um, diaper bags, right? We launched a baby collection. And that was an amazing evolution for the brand because our existing customer was there potentially in terms of life stage or for somebody that maybe hadn't been a customer, they found us for the first time. And it's that thought process that we continue to do. So those are the conversations we have. It's less around... What did you do in this one specific quarter? It's about the future. And our thesis is if we as founders and a team and investors can build this into the strongest possible brand out there, then the future is really, really great. Yes. Having that built-in community, I'm, I, I've heard time and time again, so, so important going into the last two years. What can you tell me about fueling that community, how you are connecting with them, engaging with them? What's working? So we have fully developed our customer loyalty program um, in the past year and a half or so. 
And it's been amazing. This cohort of people, which we, we knew existed, um, we've seen in different, you know, show up in different platforms, not necessarily on our own site. And we knew that there was definitely an appetite to be able to engage with them further um, and, you know, hopefully drive sales and loyalty for, um, as, as well. And that program has been, honestly, like I'd, I'd say, like a, a best-in-class program that a lot of other companies look to us now um, to set a new standard. It's been really amazing to see also how to continue to re-engage those customers to continue to drive CLV um, and what other services, whether through the tech or um, incentives we can provide in order to continue to build that relationship with them. Um, additionally, as Steve mentioned, the archive um, the archive resale program that we launched with um, that we call um, Almost Vintage, that was just another amazing way because 50% of the people who sell on the site are, are loyal customers who want to clear space in their closet, want to get more Dagny, but also want to feel good about doing it and don't want our products to land up in, you know, land in, in a landfill. And so that's been another amazing way for them to feel good about handing it off to someone else who's really been coveting some limited edition style and be able to make a little bit money back from it as well. So people do choose to, you know, get the credit to use on our site um, more so than to, than to just take the cash. Yes. Well, you guys have grown uh, huge in a huge way since the three founders. Um, tell me about the size of the company and maybe some significant hires recently. Sure. We're, we're 27 people. We're 27. So, so I think we, we look quite big. Um, we're, as in many ways, like we've, we've built the, the business so that it doesn't require, you know, 50 new hires every year, but really just a handful. And um, that is reflected in, as we mentioned, like the product assortment and the evergreen nature of it and how we do our design process as, as well. Um, and then some key hires for this year. Tiba, do you want to go into those? Yeah, so I think um, we've really been building out our digital and marketing teams, um, you know, when for when we think about the diversification away from paid or you know, diversification away from paid social, really specifically, our thesis is let's invest in how we communicate with our existing customer base, right? To Mel's point, like continuing to build out that VIP loyalty program. How do we um, continue to create great contents? One thing that Dag the Dagony team has been very successful with is growing rapidly on new social platforms. So years ago, we grew on Instagram. Now it feels like ages ago. Um, but in when actually advertising first went live, we moved quickly on it and we had this amazing content that was very organic to your feed. And we saw amazing returns on it. Actually, like back in 2017, Instagram did a case study on us saying they're seeing 13 times like ROI on ad spend because we were quick to move on it. This is when Instagram was a very efficient channel. Um, and uh, but also we believe it was because of the, the organic, authentic nature of the content that we resonated. Right. And so how do we feel more of that in the past year? We've seen a very similar um, success rate on Instagram, not on Instagram, on TikTok. Yeah. And we've grown. We have, you know, almost 150,000 followers. And that's kind of been very quick, rapid growth. And a lot of comparable brands are still trying to figure out their Instagram, um, their, sorry, their TikTok strategy. And we've been there. And so what do we need to fuel that channel? We need more content. So lots of content creators, lots of digital creators. Um, and we're building out our ops team, you know, where we need to scale um, and you need to kind of have the power, power there and then also continuing to fund product innovation. So our PD and design teams, they're growing rapidly because product is still always number one for us. Yes. Um, is she shopping on, on the platform on Instagram while she's there? Not necessarily. Yeah. I think, you know, the attribution, I, you hear this from a lot of people, right? Like, I think everybody's like, does, do people actually use the shops? And 
our takeaway has been no. They find us. They definitely still discover us, whether it's through somebody they follow or an ad or, you know, I don't know, a giveaway that we did with another brand, right? Like there's so many different ways to discover a new brand on Instagram, but they still come to the site to shop. Yes. Anything um, unique about what's working on TikTok um, and that Instagram, I don't know, influencer content. What are they doing? What's resonating? Oh my, creators on TikTok are awesome. We love them. Like they're just, they're, they have huge personalities, right? And they're honest. It's raw. It's authentic, right? It's just, it's, it's a different, it's a different way of creating. And it's been great for us. I think the awesome part about Dagny products is they showcase really well, right? There's a storytelling. There's a, you know, like, let me show you how I packed up my bag. My favorite, I think our favorite is like Anna Sitar, who has millions of followers now. But when she was like early on, we sent her our Vita tote and it just launched and she did this awesome video of like, how is she packing her bag to go to a friend's pool? And it got millions of views. And, you know, we've built this great relationship with her, which is how we kind of approach all of influencer marketing. We always love to build the relationship first and then see, well, how can we do more with you, right? Like, how can we continue to, you know, make sure that you're a true ambassador of our brand? And I mean, she's a perfect example, but there's so many that just like have gotten the bag and been like, this is the best thing ever. And now let me show you why. And it just resonates so well on the platform. Yes. Is it a move from maybe fashion focused influencers on Instagram to maybe, I don't know, comedians, athletes, like the variety on TikTok? Yeah, the, the variety is great. Like it's just, yeah. it's, um, it's so much more about your, the personality yeah. Than necessarily the I I have you know worked in this industry for X amount of years and now I've started you know a blog or started an account. It's just and it's it's real. I think at the end of the day, I think people see themselves in these creators and that's why they respond to them and they follow them. For sure. Well, tell me about growth um, and maybe category expansion. I don't know if it's as difficult to navigate as I would think, but I just. Your bags are so recognizable without like a big old logo. It's kind of a tonal little stamp there. And I kind of know it as being this kind of, I don't know what you call it. I call it like a scuba, scuba kind of material. Um, but yeah, um, in terms of category expansion, is it about material? Is it about, um, yes, um, like type of bag? How do you, how do you grow? I think that's exactly it, Jill. It's everything, right? There's so many new, there's so many ways to get in front of the customer and to and to create something that is like they need to have it, right? Whether it's solving an actual problem in, in their life, whether it's a new you know fun performance material that they that they have um, to get through their day. Um, I think what's really important is that we are always meeting the customer where they are in their life and serving their needs at that time. So, for example, while we started with with work bags, we very quickly you know went into more lifestyle bags with um, gym bags and travel bags, much to your point, the neoprene, you know, being such a versatile material, being easy to, to hand wash, being easy to flex between the different occasions in your life. And, um, and then, of course, moving into baby and just that being, I mean, a rocket ship of success for us and continues to be so much opportunity. And it's still such a limited assortment, right? And so, you know, there's so many different categories in the bag category that we can continue to build on. Um, but I think that what's important is Again, meeting our customers where they are. Thank goodness the supply chain has caught up and has been able to help us produce, uh, you know, recycled uh, materials that are recycled and that are innovative and really cool and technical. Um, so we're really proud of, again, 
the material differentiation that we're able to provide in the market for everything going forward, right, regardless of whatever new verticals we go into. So um, it is a matter of material, a function of the problem that we're solving, as well as life stage. You know, we've, we've addressed baby, but there are certainly other stages of life that we know that people have, have needs for and that um, we could address as well. For sure. Well, what are your specific goals for 2022? Um, I think number one is to continue to um, really expand our product line in a meaningful way and continue to not just um, acquire new customers, but to provide something to our our existing customers that's cool, new, different, more eco-friendly. Um, the second one is really, really focusing on how do we continue to be and build and grow as a conscious brand? A lot of great things have happened in the past couple of years where we have um, in- increased our give back, right? Increased the right, how we think about our impact on the world we live in. And this year you'll see even more of that coming from us. And then the last is it's related to everything we're talking about on the marketing side, but it's like, how do we continue to um, drive and push those owned organic sessions to the site, right? Like, and really think about site experience and customer experience and product education so that, you know, we can focus on things like CRO rather than CAC. Um, And really, really just, you know, continue to own what has gotten us here, right? We've always had a great, strong evangelical customer. Let's continue to foster that customer. Mel, am I missing anything? I think the one other thing is that, um, you know, we, we've always partnered with micro influencers and we, we, we don't ever do like any sort of like, you know, huge, huge paid influencer campaigns. We, that, that doesn't, that's not us. Um, it's not why people come to us. And so we're going much more deeply into um, the creator world and the micro influencer world and making sure that we're getting in front of some creators who we maybe haven't or we haven't had the bandwidth to, you know, form those relationships and investing in that. It's yet, you know, as Eva mentioned, all the different ways in which we're looking at customer acquisition going forward. It's certainly not just about the digital, but it's about the retail partnerships. It's about strategic gifting. It's about, um, you know, other ways in which we're getting eyeballs on our brand. So that is a that's a major area for us. In addition to the content creation that Diva mentioned, we are, you know, uh, going a little bit more heavily into. Yes, with so many of your sales happening online, um, I, I, I was just thinking of what's happening in store and the opportunity to kind of pack a bag and see how everything fits and have that, um, yeah, experience and and testing trial and error type of a an experience. Are you able to replicate that online in any way, or what? What's been, I guess, adjusted to to the online experience since everyone's gone there? So actually, at the beginning of um, COVID, before we opened the store, we started doing virtual styling sessions so people could call and zoom in, right, when they weren't going to our store or like their local Nordstrom or something like that. And while that's evolved over the time, honestly, I have to shout out our backpack. They're our customer experience team, and they're phenomenal. They will do anything from tell you where your order is to sit there and talk you through every product or, you know, and try to really help you figure that out. And we found that that personal connection for that person who's really trying to figure it out um, makes a huge difference. And, you know, we have a very flexible, you know, we have a good return policy so people can test and try different things out. But we are doing more product education videos is probably the most important thing. And so you'll see, going back to the content creation, you know, investing in content creation is also part of that. But you know, some of our best performing videos on 
different platforms and things like that. There are ones where people are packing up the bag and explaining to her. Jessie herself is explaining, well, this is how I pack up my bag. Um, so people really can visualize it and understand it. Just one more thing I, f- I forgot to mention is that, um, you know, up until last year, we were in 34 Nordstrom locations. Now we're in all 100. And a big part of our success at Nordstrom, and they've always said that, you know, we're the poster child of how they wish every brand was in terms of our ability to create a problem solve and just like, you know, be agile and nimble with as the punches get thrown, you know, just dealing with those. But um, another piece of why we've been so successful in Nordstrom has been the very hands-on approach that we've had in training their associates and investing in them. You know, we went to every single location and did and did trainings with them directly myself. And, um, and being able to also provide all the different, you know, um, digital uh, methods to train them as well for if they didn't make the info session or if, you know, if they want to pull it up and review it and giving them all of the product knowledge decks so that they can have that at their at their reach when they're, you know, discussing these items with, with customers as well. So giving them the tools to do a great job is really important and you'll see a lot more of that going forward now that we're coming out, hopefully, of COVID. We're able to do that a bit more and get in person and invest in, in the associates that we have across the country as well. I love that you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm hearing from folks trying to navigate the the associate training issue, we'll say. <laughs> yeah, Mel's, Mel's phenomenal at it. I ha- Like, I have to shout. Like, she and um, Maria and our team, like, they do a phenomenal job. Like, we, um, right before COVID actually ha- hit, um, the Nordstrom has, like, Nordstrom Live, where they have a lot of their top managers and people from the stores come and when we were there, it was amazing to watch the connections that Mel had built with a lot of these managers, but it goes a long way, right? Like, and I've gone to Nordstrom's and been like, oh, blah, 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 and talking and they're like, oh, no, no, I remember the training. It was so great. And it's just that it goes back to people, right? Like I think at Dagny, we believe in humans. We believe in people. And, you know, having a founder or Maria, who's the other person on our team who does these trainings, who was started with us as an intern way back when and has stayed with us. So she was one of our first employees. Having people who really know and love and believe in the brand to speak to and train these associates, it's amazing how that investment shows such a great return because they remember those. Like it's, I love it. Every time I go to Nordstrom, somebody remembers Mel. And I'm like, I was like, yes. I think that really speaks to like exactly how we operate as a company. As I mentioned, like everything we do has like a lot of thoughtfulness built into it, but it's also, as Deepa just mentioned, the importance of relationships, right? From who we've chosen to be our investors to who we've chosen to hire. These are not people who came in with the perfect resume. These are people who came in super capable and super, you know, adaptable, but we, we brought them in and had them wear a ton of hats and now they're superstars within our company, right? So it's like everything that we do is very relationship heavy and the same thing with the associates. I think that a lot of brands and often feel like other retailers' associates are a burden. And that is not at all the case. They are a strong tool. If you invest in them, if you give them attention like anyone, like any other employee, your children, you know, a partner, whoever it is in your life, if you invest in them, they will do amazing work for you and they will respect you and they will tell your story and create that word of mouth that, that we all crave, right? So, um, and that connection with customers that we all crave to have too. So they're really an amazing tool to, to leverage. I love that. That's a great note to end on. Lesson learned here. Write it down. Take notes. Anyway, thank you, ladies. This was so, so great. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Jill. Yeah, thanks for having us. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.